Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Perfect. Okay, we're recording now, Devin. Um, cool. You just said some really insightful stuff last, like, five minutes. Yeah. we got to, yeah. like, start recording now. But uh, yeah. great to have you in the podcast. Um, you know, for context, Devon Kyer is the co-founder and CEO of 1859, uh, a leading small molecule drug discovery company enabled by AI. But I'll let Devon give the background because he can—he's the best salesman for the company. But good to have you on. Yeah, you know, uh, thanks a lot, Josh. Really appreciate it. Uh, we've been, you know, going back and forth over the past few years. Uh, really inspired by how you keep the com- uh, community kind of cohesive and, and always plugged in. I think the Axial Substack is fantastic. So um, Appreciate it. really uh, kind of yeah, excited to share our story and hopefully it helps. Oh, yeah. Well, I think maybe we start off, we can talk about like how you got started, maybe how you got yeah. started in science, you know, or, yeah. or in, wherever you want to begin. It could be at script, it could be earlier if you want. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's see, going all the way back. Um, so I was always really interested in science um you know early days in high school reading discover magazines and always kind of reading the latest and greatest and seeing how the fields are moving uh, i got really interested in genomics i remember like when they you know they did the human genome project and i was pretty fascinated by the ability to you know sequence the human genome and for the first time kind of understand what makes us tick um so i was really interested in biology um you know watching movies like jurassic park and just kind of thinking outside the box of what's possible um i think uh you know, the, you're only really limited by your creativity and your imagination when it comes to science. And um, so, I, yeah, my scientific journey, I guess, started off at UCLA, uh, was part of um, uh, Fraser Stard- Stoddard's lab at, at UCLA doing supermolecular chemistry. And I took this organic chemistry course with this guy, Stuart Cantrell, who was uh, the editor for Nature Chemistry. Um, and just got hooked on the ability to kind of design uh, molecules, design matter from scratch, uh, following just kind of like these um, rules of organic chemistry. And it was a little bit more art than science. Um, of course, there's something thrown in with orbitals and electrons and pushing things around. But um, ultimately, uh, with, with chemistry, you really just have to visualize nature and really understand kind of this multifactorial rules dimensional universe um to make things happen i was really attracted by that and so when i joined uh fraser stoddard's lab at a ucla he was focusing on rotaxanes and catenanes and molecular machines and making these complicated huge three-dimensional molecular structures and using them for molecular electronics and uh like these tunable led types of uh, types of components um so just kind of jumped in. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd only taken a few chemistry courses, and so it was not that useful, but learned a tremendous amount. Um, ultimately got to the point where, you know, really understand what was what was going on. Um, but with chemistry, it's you're designing things from first principles. And when you start to look at uh, enzymes, uh, they're doing chemical transformations that, you know, a chemist can only really, really dream about. And so I got really kind of fascinated with uh, biology. And so uh, me and some colleagues at UCLA uh, wanted to kind of test the waters in synthetic biology. And so we tried, tried our luck at 
um, building these uh, genetic circuits and Arabidopsis thaliana for controlling um, the production of different types of uh, proteins or chemicals. And so started to transition away from chemistry and get a little bit more into biology. Um, cool. Learned cloning and um, uh, genetic engineering, protein expression, um, kind of just a completely different skill set than what I've been focused on. And so I went to Scripps at, at a, um, in La Jolla uh, to get my PhD in chemical biology, kind of focusing on bridging both disciplines and um, thinking about biology more at first principles than kind of biology as modules. So I joined Guy uh, Resigadiri's lab um, at Scripps. They colloquially uh, called us uh, the Wizards and Warlocks lab because we were all just doing crazy types of you know, just a lot of crazy science, just like slapping things together and, and uh, you know, really kind of think about, you know, how do you make self-replicating systems or how do you use DNA as a, as a logic element or how do you do molecular computation with DNA as an information readout? And I was just drawn to just crazy ideas, um, things that really hadn't been ever built before. And so... Uh, my thesis work, um, it was a, you know, Herculean effort. It's just basically me kind of trying to get uh, this initial concept off the ground. It took a long time. Um, so the benefit of doing something complicated is you get to fail a lot. <laughs> um, but in the process of failing, you create this understanding of science and nature that otherwise you wouldn't have if everything worked perfectly. So it's really kind of the negative data that's really, really valuable for getting good at science. And so that was a good experience. Ultimately, my thesis work um, culminated in um, being able to barcode uh, enzymes and barcode antibodies uh, with a really efficient manner um, and using those constructs for uh, what we call plug and play therapeutics, cool. basically um, having the ability to recruit different types of constructs to cell surfaces uh, where I could use those constructs for creating some sort of therapeutic modality to treat cancerous cells. Um, and so after that, you know, I, I had gone to Europe and was really attracted to, to maybe kind of doing a stint in, in Zurich or Italy or <laughs> London, like that. And so I was got <laughs> going through the find yourself phase and uh, I was walking on the beach up in Encinitas um, here in San Diego, and was like trying to think of what do I do? What do I do? Do I to go to Oxford and do this postdoc to to figure out a way to sequence proteins, um, or do I focus on kind of this entrepreneurial idea that I had been kicking around? Um, and I was walking on the beach, and I was like, well, if you could only figure out if you could do like high throughput barcoding of antibodies. So, so kind of taking a step back. My thesis work was around if I knew how to target cancer, I could create this plug and play therapeutic um, platform. But if I didn't know the biomarker, I don't have anything. So I was like, well, how do I figure out how to quickly identify with a small amount of sample the target that's specific, a biomarker that's specific, specifically expressed in a cancerous cell in a really rapid way? And I was like, well, I know how to barcode antibodies. And then I was like, okay, well, if I can barcode antibodies, well, and I can do that in a high throughput fashion. What if I had a library of antibody constructs that went after all these different biomarkers that potentially exist in the cell surface? Okay, that'd be cool. 
well, then how do I deconvolute it? Okay, oh, I just use the DNA barcode as a sequence tag. So that was kind of the initial um, idea for this initial company that um, me and a couple of friends started up in SF is barcoding antibodies with specific sequences, applying those to some protein sample or cell sample of interest, and then identifying at the single cell level, um, what are the biomarkers that are, spe that are specifically expressed? Um, so yeah, walk around the beach. One, one, thing, one, one quick question is, yeah. what was that spark that got you interested in business? Was mm. it in childhood? Did you like try to yeah. make money on the side or was it in college? You have like a, a side gig mm. or did you ever sell yeah. surfboards on the side or, <laughs> or what did you, how did you, did you ever, or were you ever interested in money or did it just kind of just yeah. happen or were you more interested in the prom of like, like, oh, that came up during your grad school research? Um, I think so in grad school, um, I think I was always kind of entrepreneurial. Like my, my brain naturally gravitates towards problems. Cool. And, um, how do you, how do you solve those problems in an elegant way that scales? Um, less kind of bespoke brute force problem solving, but more kind of, how do I create an ecosystem of solutions around this problem? And, um, there is a, um, yeah, and so that's kind of always, I've always had like a bunch of like entrepreneurial ideas like that, um, that I've, you know, I've pushed on a couple of things kind of in the background and grad school and college and high school. But I think kind of given the time constraints um, in college and in grad school, um, never really just had the, the push um, to, to see any of those through. Um, but I would say like, yeah, always kind of pretty entrepreneurial by nature. And so like, this was like eight years ago or maybe 10 years ago. So I don't want to date you too much, but like, uh, uh, wow. but just like, it's like eight years ago. And do you have any role models, you know, in terms of like yeah. your scripts? I mean, scripts is very entrepreneurial in general. I think scripts has the most drug approvals of any institution yeah. in the world. So yeah. you had that exposure, but did you pick up any like mentors or role models on the translational entrepreneurial side? Yeah. Um, I had a lot of friends that were part of like the UCSD entrepreneurs um, challenge um, that were kind of in my early initial mentors um, and uh, some friends um, whose family members were CEOs of other types of companies. Cool. Uh, and kind of what happens is like, I think I'm naturally just um, pretty open and transparent. And so I'll talk to someone and one conversation leads to a, a networking um, kind of connection. And then I'm like talking to some other person and then some other person and then some other purpose. And all of a sudden, like you kind of find yourself in a room with a bunch of people that have, uh, that are really entrepreneurial. And then you're just having a conversation about um, how you guys like to do things different. And you know, what are the lessons and, and learnings that, that people have had in starting companies? Cool. Um, okay. That's, that's really yeah. something you just like, yeah, just kind of being more problem oriented. And then yeah. if you kind of people who are, you'll gravitate toward people who are aligned. But let's shift back to the, the thread. This is like, so I think the company, your first company called MYI, remember? Uh, yeah. So focus. I think you guys are the first class in Indie Bio. I remember. Yeah. Or maybe second class. Uh, second, second class. We were the second, second class, class Bio. Um, no, it was, yeah. Any, went to Indie Bio. We, we also kind of we got funded a little bit by the Illumin Accelerator. And we got a grant. Um, 
And I think, you know, coming straight out of grad school as a scientist, you're very technology focused, yeah. technology first. And, you know, our initial pitch decks were terrible. It was, <laughs> look at this really cool technology and these hundred things that we could potentially do. And the VCs and the investors are like, don't care. I like your technology, but really, what's the one problem that you're in that one product that you have? And then the technology solves it great, but why is it better than everyone else's? Then how are you going to make, make me a bunch of money? And so kind of going through the accelerators that reworked, um, you know, how I think about things. Yeah. And it's, it's much more kind of product focused versus technology focused. And it was kind of the, the boot camp of how to start a company and just the, you know, a lot of the kind of mentorship that we got through, um, what's his name? Uh, Ryan. Uh, Ryan and uh, Ron, yeah. Yeah, Ryan and Ron and, and Arvin. Um, they were fantastic, super honest, super helpful. Um, and we learned a ton um, in that first foray uh, with st starting a company. Um, ultimately, we figured out kind of where the technology best fit, but unfortunately, just it ran out of money. Um, and after that experience, you know, after we kind of licked our wounds a little bit, we we're like, okay, well, let's see how other people start companies. Um, so I was recruited to this company called Omnium down here in uh, San Diego. Um, and, you know, really just wanted to learn, um, you know, what works, what doesn't. Um, take a, a big dose of, of uh, humility once, you know, your kind of first startup experience doesn't necessarily work yeah. out. Um, and, you know, I think naturally just my personality is, um, I'm pretty straightforward. Um, I would say I have a strong personality, but kind of minimal ego and, um, good at kind of cutting through noise. So it's kind of naturally just kind of emerged as, I don't want to say a leader, but, um, someone that could herd everyone together and, and solve complicated problems. And so at uh, Omnium worked with a, a broad swath of kind of interdisciplinary scientists and um, learned how to, uh, you know, put the pieces together to essentially build a sequencing system from scratch. Um, it was a good experience, uh, you know, met a lot of great colleagues that um, still interface with today, um, some of which are kind of part of the original kind of team at 1859. Um, and was recruited to uh, Singular Genomics, another sequencing company here in San Diego. Um, was really kind of impressed by uh, how Eli and, and Drew um, managed to make a lot of progress in a really short amount of time and in a field that necessarily wasn't their core expertise. Um, Drew is kind of a good indirect mentor, I think, for how to start a company. Um, and I think that was kind of the experience that gave me the confidence that, you know, starting a company is complicated, um, but with just enough experience, you kind of see kind of the minimal viable specs required to successfully launch a startup. Um, and I think that was kind of the big push that I had. I remember I was like talking to some friends um, at this little local brewery here in, in, in uh, up on the Mesa. And, you know, we were kind of all kind of ambitious and we we're like, well, could we do this thing? And ultimately it came down to, you know, what skill set do we not have yet? 
Um, and the conclusion that was that, you know, we thought we could build it. We had kind of a successful track record of getting really complicated things to work. Um, we knew how to kind of manage teams and communicate and work well together. Um, and that was kind of the, the last kind of missing piece that, that we needed to kind of get back into the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey. Cool. Um, so okay, let's, I think that kind of moves to 1859. So you found yeah. it in 2018. I think yeah. before anything, the most important question when you start, you know, why did you name it 1859? Um, it was, that, it was like a name you always had in the back of your head or was it just something um, that you read, read a book? It's, oh, this sounds cool. Oh no, it was, uh, it was my friend's idea. So, um, we were down in La Jolla at this place called the living room and we were trying to come up with a name for the company. And from the first company, my eye, the the way we kind of came to names before was what makes a good logo and so myi my was yeah. we could have the water antibody and we're like oh and i could be information like it'd be really cool um it's probably the bat the, the not the greatest way to go about getting a name because everyone's like mem i remember our first company they were like myi myi like it was like this like <laughs> japanese or chinese like you know three-letter name that everyone's confused but um, when we were at the living room in La Jolla, we we're trying to come up with a name, and um, I was always kind of drawn to evolution. Um, and this concept of 18, 1859 is very, very akin to kind of the evolutionary process. And so me and my friend were uh, trying to come up with a name, and I was like, well, what about Galapagos? And he was like, no, there's Galapagos Biotech. That's a terrible name. And I was like, yeah, that's true. Um, then I was like, what about Darwin? And he's like, it's it's okay, but it's like, you know, you don't want to be named after a guy. It's not like, you know, you don't want to wear a jersey um, yeah. to, to basically showcase your biotech name. <laughs> and then he was like, uh, well, you know, what did Darwin publish? And I was like, Origin of Species. And he's like, when was it published? And I was like, no idea. And he's like, 1859. He's like, that's it. And there was this recent company called uh, CD47, I think, that uh, was another number base name and you know typically with like biotechs it's you know aflasia therapeutics or da 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 therapeutics and we're like yeah we don't want to do that so um 1859 was more kind of like it's either it's either going to be a whiskey company or a biotech but hopefully uh we could get a big enough of a name that it, that it turns into a biotech company um so that's how we uh we honed in on it okay so you're at singular and how did you make the jump from, you know, having a job to a startup? Was it something that you were prepping and you touched base with Andrew and other co-founders, or did you just like get out of Singular and then do 1859? I think the latter. I think actually thinking of just verbalizing it, you left Singular yep. and start the company because no, yep. no conflict. Um, yep. Yep. And so once you left Singular, I answered my question already. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When yeah. you started 1859 in 2018, how did you yeah. get the team together? How did you get the co-founders? How did you uh, think about the problems you want to work on? And you know, how did you find the technology? Yeah. So um, there was a seminar at Scripps that GSK was presenting at. And Richard Lerner was hosting a conference on DNA-encoded libraries. And I was sitting in the audience, and I was like, um, they were showing kind of the the workflow for DNA encoded libraries and how it's useful for discovery. And I was familiar with like David Liu's work and um, a few others in the field. 
But I always thought of DNA encoded libraries as kind of like tinker toys, not necessarily valuable, uh, kind of like an interesting academic exercise. But seeing what GSK was showcasing, I was like, okay, this is this field is sufficiently mature. This could be pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, the problem was that DNA encoded libraries was really relegated to um, binding based assays, uh, not necessarily probing for function. I couldn't do cell based assays. Um, I wouldn't understand the degree at which a molecule had potency because it was more of like a binary readout. So I'm sitting in the audience and I'm like, well, this is cool, but if I had to rebuild it, how would I do it? Yeah. And if I could kind of miniaturize an assay into something that could fit in the Pico scale, and I could fit, I could park a molecule in that Pico scale feature, and I could visualize what was going on and then deconvolute with sequencing because I'm at such a miniaturized format, I could have an ultra high throughput screening platform. Mm -hmm. And um, it was kind of a big jump, um, but kind of just based on my expertise um, with sequencing and the first company and my thesis work, and it all kind of just came together. Um, and I'd reached out to um, Andrew McConnell, Brian Pagel out of Scripps, Florida. They were doing this in a microfluidic format. And um, Andrew moved out to, um, to essentially pursue a, vent, a new venture, uh, but me and him became friends um, for the for like the first year and a half that he was there, um, and it was just like a meeting of the minds. Like we're super practical. Um, cool. I'm you know pretty relentlessly objective. Um, I don't care. You know, I'm a scientist by nature. I don't kind of um, follow kind of dogmatic perspectives. I follow kind of data driven perspectives. And and Andrew was really the same. So we could have like a conversation and completely disagree and then hone in through the data and be like, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and so we could work really, really well together. Um, How did you two meet? How did you all three meet? Is it like two friends or did you email them or? Yeah. Um, it was an email. Um, and then uh, he was kind of on his way out from Florida. Um, and um, we were working at J Labs at the same time. I was at Singular, and he was at this other company. Oh, um, yeah. And we would just kind of have lunch together and play volleyball, and um, you know, go to breweries. And he would kind of get me up to speed of where he was, and I would get him up to speed where I was. Um, and then cool. sometime in 2019, we decided to make the leap and kind of pursue this concept um, together. Um, with uh, one of our other co-founders, Ramesh uh, Ramji, had a, uh, he was part of the advanced research team out of uh, Illumina, um, and then two other co-founders, um, Brian Pagel and uh, Sarah Cortez. Cool. Um, and you know, we spent it was like February to June, it, or May really. Um, it was just nonstop pitching. So I had lunch meetings with someone new every single day in the San Diego area. Um, pitching this concept for the company, putting pitch decks together, like one new completely revised pitch deck, like every day or two. Um, wow. And just like a lot of energy. <laughs> so uh, I think 59 is a really unique business model. Yeah. Because you're kind of a high, you have a tool that makes a drug. You're definitely a drug company, right. but you have many elements of developing breakthrough tools to then enable drug development 
And those yeah. early days, was it always a drug company or did you think about tools and maybe going down the path of like instrument sales? And how did you kind of hone in on your current business model? A lot of daily iteration, maybe, maybe yep. part of it. Oh yeah. Um, so as soon as we got funded for this company uh, from Fusion X, um, we flew out to Boston, started pitching to biotech after biotech after biotech after biotech, pitching our platform, pitching our technology, really seeing what resonates, what works, what doesn't, uh, really being product focused. And um, you know, the core concept is encoded libraries. Um, we encode them with DNA or other types of molecules. And when we initially started, we were kind of binned into, oh, you're a Dell company. Yeah. And so we tried to copy uh, the Dell company playbook of, um, you know, we tried to take some of HitGen's concepts and XChem's concepts um, in the business model um, because what we were selling was pretty unique. We had the ability to make um, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of molecules every few weeks. Um, we make discoveries. How do we monetize those discoveries to make sure that we're maximizing value? Um, and so we tried every business model variation you can think of um, and got a lot of feedback, what works, what doesn't, and ultimately kind of learned from the experiences of Absci, Abcellera, Adamab, a lot of the antibody discovery companies and um, started to adopt some of the things that they do. So uh, essentially the core of the company for us, uh, we have our quote unquote 1859 discovery engine, which consists of a tar disease target comes in <clears throat> uh, from a biotech or a pharma company. They want us to design tailor-made molecular libraries that uh, affect that disease target in a desired way. We build a uh, couple hundred thousand molecular library in two weeks. Uh, we then screen it on our platform uh, in a dose response screen. So it's a minor detail, but it allows us to effectively see the SAR library wide. So identifying the best molecules, the worst molecules, and then the gradient in between. We then leverage that data set to train uh, machine learning models to predict lead-like or the optimal set of molecules that a biotech or pharma company would be interested in. And so the tech is really just the means of generating millions of functionally annotated data points and then leveraging that data to get to the high value molecules that partners are interested in. And so effectively, because we're going through the design, build, screen, learn cycle, our core metric for our company is something we call cycle starts. So the number of effective cycles that we can initiate in a quarterly period, because every time we go through a full cycle, we generate data, which is which is the associated value that a partner is going to purchase. Um, and so, how do you measure? So this is okay, the platform consists like four main parts, right? You target and right. all the way to then like a SAR map and hits. How, right. uh, how do you think about just take a little step back? building each part of the platform you know when you got the company started and you raised money like did you try to build it all at once or did you try to build well, first piece once for really well and then add modules over time and then yep. also to overlay that how did you think about like 
inter- you, know, you, you have like three different types of people. You have machine learning people, chemists, and biologists, and probably a bunch of other types of people. How do you think yeah. about managing an interdisciplinary team as well? Um, so when we initially started, um, there was a lot of work that had to be done to essentially kind of scale up and commercialize the technology. A lot of kind of technical nuances that had to be solved. Um, and so we focused initially on screening. So the first question was, can we, be a, can we build a screening system that kind of functionally acts in the way we want it to, to sort molecules that do the thing that we're looking for? Cool, we did that. And then the next question was with controls. And the next question was, okay, can we build a library that effectively fishes out those controls? And if it does, can it effectively predict and sort molecules that we otherwise didn't know work? Okay, that worked. And then the next question was, okay, we can do that. So we can build this, we can screen and we can build libraries. The next question was, how effective is this system at making true positive calls and not false positive calls so that we can have confidence in the data so that we can leverage that data as a valuable resource for machine learning. And so then we did that. And then the next question was, okay, the screen works, we can build libraries fast, where we can be confident in the data, we can use machine learning models to predict high value assets that are the types of molecules partners are interested in. Does that work? And so that worked. Um, so it was more kind of dictated by kind of the minimal viable need to, to demonstrate progress. Um, and then dictated by the need of the partners where say they would come to us with, this is my problem. How does your workflow solve this? Or this is my problem. How does your workflow solve that? And you can either build you know, a vacuum for everybody or you can build an adapter that takes in lots of different complex problems and put them all, pipe them all through the same workflow, which is I think is the, the hard part. And then that adapter then feeds back out value in the ways that they wanna have it. Makes a ton um, of sense. So then, like when you were building out each part of the platform to make it in one cohesive um, object thing, mm-hmm. were you did you feel like you need to build out that whole piece first before you talk to partners, or was it feasible for you to like say we can do screening, let's talk to X Pharma partner, and then get feedback, and then. Was, was it an iterative? It seemed like it was an iterative process with partners to build up the platform, not so much yep. like, well, we have this vision of platform, let's raise money and build it, then talk to the customers. Let's, right. do, let's talk to customers first and make sure we're on the right track. And that seemed to right. be a big part of your success is yeah. losing our proms and always talking to customers. So you're not yeah. going down the wrong direction. 100%. And I think, you know, that's, there's the, the philosophy of um, lay out a plan and just execute on that plan, not blindly, but that's that's what we're doing. And then there's the other philosophy of thought of take a minimal viable step and iterate. And I'm much more on the kind of minimal viable step and then iterate to make sure that, um, because it's a long-term commitment, you wanna make sure that your compass needle is pointing in the right direction. And that just requires rapid cycles of learning. You gotta fail fast and you gotta iterate quickly um, to really just get to product market fit as fast as possible. Um, I think on the biotech side, that's a lot harder because the learning cycles are slower. You have to 
build a complicated technology, get it working, iterate. Um, and you know, you see that with you know with sequencing companies, um, it takes a long time to build a sequencer. Um, Twist Bio, it takes a long time to build a platform that can make sequences. Um, it just takes a long time with biotech. Um, that's a blessing and a, and a curse because um, you know it takes years to get to something that's viable, uh, whereas software can take months to get to something that's viable. Um, but the benefit of it taking a long time is that you create effectively an IP know-how moat where it would be otherwise difficult for competitors to, to catch up um, faster than it took for you to get there in the first place. Whereas software, I think that's a little bit um, different. That makes sense. I think the lesson is you really have to always touch base with your partners as you build the platform, even if they're not, like, would you recommend talking to a potential partner even before, even if, even like before the paperwork signed or mm -hmm. would you wait to present data to a partner um, and not let them like, to impress them, right? Is it, how much is the wow factor important versus just touching base with partners? And maybe that's like depending on the company and the people, but maybe like from your experience, uh, what was the most effective way to get partners? Um, I think for us, um, you want to break your technology as many ways as you can. Um, because if you want your partners to break it, you don't want to break it. Um, you want them to break it in many ways as possible so that when you rebuild it, it's an elegant solution that solves all problems versus some. Mm -hmm. um, not in the context of being everything to everyone, but being, because um, for a platform company, um, you can't be everything to everyone, but you should strive to increase your accessible market as much as possible with as generalizable and scalable solutions as possible, I think. That's at cool. least my philosophy. Um, that makes sense. That's actually pretty, really insightful. Uh, but on the platform side, also, I think you alluded to core metrics. I think it's a really yeah. important topic is when you build a biotech yeah. company platform, is like, how do you measure success? Because you definitely, you know, you, you, you talk about cycle starts. Uh, but like yeah. for 859, are there some core metrics and and how did you hone in on like how to determine if a platform is working or not? Right. Um, I think it's you hone in on your product. Um, and then you work backwards from that product. So how how long does it take you to get to that valuable product? That's step one. And then how long does it take you to get to that next? valuable product along um, in the same vein cool. and everything kind of i think all the metrics effectively fall out of that because you want to be able to show scalability not just um you know if my product was i got to a if we were a platform company and i got to a e3 ligase molecular glue type of molecule cool how long did it take <laughs> 10 years five years 20 years um, what's your next product? Is it going to take 10 years, five years, or 20 years? Because that's a really long iteration cycle and you're probably not going to survive. Um, so, um, I think it's, you know, it's really kind of honing in with kind of what your core value proposition is, like what your, where your competitive advantage kind of vectors point. Um, and that's your product. And then, and then kind of working back from, 
the market for that competitive advantage kind of focused product. That makes a lot of sense. And so maybe we can talk about business model too, which is interrelated. You talk about yep. Appcelera and Adamab, and these are wonderful businesses, right? Because they're like, yep. they have technology platforms and partner up with a large set of companies, generate a good amount of cash, and yep. you know, control their destiny. Uh, so 1859, how do you think about doing that for small molecules? And yep. in terms of, like, you know, antibodies have some advantages and small molecules have their own set of advantages. And it definitely seems that the partnering business model is more amenable to antibodies. I think for 1859, it seemed like you're more focused on a fully integrated model, not just mm -hmm. licensing a molecule, but like a library and a process. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you, maybe I'll talk about traction so far, but maybe yeah. also think about like, you know, how did you develop your business model to make it tailor-made yeah. for small molecules uh, and do something yeah. that maybe other people hadn't really done so well? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, good art, good artists copy, great artists steal. We stole yeah. all of our learnings from kind of the market. And um, so our, if our core metric is cycle starts, um, effectively, that's the number of cycles we can execute per quarter. And then we think about, okay, how many annual cycle starts can we go through? And so that effectively becomes capacity for discovery. And so how we monetize, we have um, discovery access, which effectively is leveraging our in-house capacity in terms of a service-based offering where partners come to us with problems, disease targets of interest that they need small molecules for. We apply our workflows. We uh, build libraries, design libraries, screen those libraries, generate AI, uh, machine learning models, um, predict leads. Um, and then we can also leverage those models to not just identify early leads, but also optimize molecules towards optimized leads or even candidates. So partners come to us where we essentially provide that tech stack that gives them the accelerator to high value assets. Or uh, if a partner wants to build out capacity at their site, we call that our technology access, where we effectively build out our screening infrastructure on site. Uh, partner scientists can interface with our teams. We design libraries, we build libraries, we deliver libraries to that site. Uh, we generate, we do screens, we generate the data, we apply our machine learning models, we predict lead molecules. Partners can leverage those models to optimize the molecules that we discover uh, for their targets, um, effectively keeping that in-house. So pharma, larger pharma companies and big biotechs are interested in that path. Kind of the mid biotechs and smaller stage biotechs are, are more interested in the discovery access path, um, but it's not necessarily exclusive. Uh, we also have pharma partners that are that just want to give us twenty targets. Um, here's twenty targets. Go get us molecules. Um, and so effectively, our business model kind of falls into the uh, what Adamab calls funded discovery and technology mm -hmm. license technology access. That's effectively how our business model falls out. Um, and then the last kind of component that's emerging is what we call program access, where um, we might interface with academic institutes or we pick our own targets. Um, we apply our workflows to those targets. We generate uh, molecules. We advance those molecules, optimize them uh, further and further and further. This is more kind of a pipeline. Um, 
And then we outlicense those molecules to biotechs or pharma companies interested in, in assets around those particular targets. Um, or the future path could be potentially outlicensing those molecules to NUCOs and putting uh, the associated um, experience and, and, and pharma veteran um, executive leadership team around those new codes to advance those programs even further. Um, so effectively using our capacity in-house, we build capacity externally, or we leverage our capacity to pursue uh, programs for outlicensing. Cool. And I think on this business model point in biotech in particular, you know, like companies like Abcellera, you know, they've done all this business model innovation and what, what has it enabled for them? Right? It's allowed them to develop a lot of different programs with partners to allow them to control their destiny, right? And not right. have to excessively sell equity. And there's a bunch right. of other advantages, you know, for 1859, right. you know, and it's just like, why do all this business model creativity or what, what's the, what's the long-term purpose, you know, in terms of like, what do you think, you know, like versus just the standard model of like, Hey, let's make a drug, right? I think right. that's what most right. people in biotech do. They say make a drug and just right. do that one business model why take all this risk on the business model side and, and what do you, what kind of long-term value do you think that creates for a company? Right. So I think um, we think of ourselves more of a, a catalyst, um, an accelerator yeah. for, um, for value creation. And I think the big issue is that if we focused exclusively on pipeline, 94% um, of the time we're going to fail. Um, we would rather enable others that want to advance programs. Um, well, we're doing some internally more as case studies to kind of just stress test the platform and demonstrate that we cannot just find hits, early leads, optimized leads, um, all the way to candidate, uh, but kind of go end to end for a particular partner. So it's, it's more kind of marketing material, if anything. Um, but yeah, I think the, the big risk is um it costs a lot of money to develop yeah, assets definitely. um and we would rather spread out that risk across the industry and put them in the best chance of give them the, the best chance of success to start with molecules that are much less likely to fail as um as those programs get further and further and further yeah totally agree i think you know i think business model innovation allows you to have a lot of leverage because you're yeah. to use resources of a bunch of other people, the ecosystem. Uh, right. And I think you said this at the beginning, right? You like to build an ecosystem of solutions for a problem. And so maybe right. you do the same thing for 1859, right? You're right. building an ecosystem of solutions that make drugs. And so right. um, one one quick side note, maybe, you know, talk about AI and drug development as a side note. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Machine learning is like the last part of your platform to you know, optimize it. How, how have you seen machine learning affect various parts of your platform, especially with recent advancements? And how do you foresee that, you know, progressing over the next maybe like five years? Yeah. So um, machine learning is going to be a critical component for us moving forward. And the reason for that is if I, if, if I handed a chemist um, a million data points where those millions of data points all had SAR information around how a particular molecule affected some target of interest and the degree it affected that target of interest, they would be overwhelmed with information. They would be like, I have no idea what to do. Um, 
But what machine learning is really good for is being able to tease out those very subtle nuances that make things work or not work. And we're starting to leverage all of the data that we're generating to create models that take into account all the positive and negative, negative data that we've generated. And we're creating a kind of real-time feedback loop for our medicinal chemists where say we give them a molecule that's validated, it works, it's an early lead, it's a good tractable hit. And then they start making these bespoke edits to the molecule. And normally the cycle for learning would be CRO, go make a molecule, and then we'll figure out if it works. But what we do internally is we actually leverage the models that we've generated to guide the chemist to make viable edits that optimize the model's predictive power to um, effectively or optimize the um, the model will essentially predict the best molecules to work. So effectively, the probability that something go, is going to work or have higher activity, the model's um, predictive metric goes up. Um, if, a, if a chemist starts making deleterious edits or, or poor choices, the mo model's predictive score goes down. Uh, effectively, the metric says don't make that. Um, and so we're using the model effectively as a real-time guide so that medicinal chemists can effectively do the design work manually. And only when they get a high score, it's kind of like fold it uh, for protein folding, um, does a chemist actually place the order for the CRO to go and make the bespoke molecule? Um, and then do we actually test it? So, so it seems like you, for the company, like, have you, has you, have you seen like a correlation between number of cycle starts and then predictive like predictivity of models. Yep. Um, so if we do one cycle, uh, we can predict early leads fairly well. Our, our um, predictive power is pretty, pretty reasonable. As we generate more and more SAR data points, our predictive power goes up. Um, we've been able to go through two cycles, start from, you know, ten micromolar or so hits down to three nanomolar um, IC50s. So pretty substantial improvement after just um, two iterations. Um, and the more data points that we generate, the better the predictive power of the model go or uh, improves. Um, and effectively, we're going to start building out the scoreboard for activity prediction, potency prediction, selectivity prediction, um, liability prediction, add me talks, so that a chemist, when they're designing molecules, they'll have a real-time score to essentially guide them towards that needle and haystack that they're trying to find in the first place. Cool, and that actually might make small molecules like more feasible to license, uh, to more like more feasible to do something similar to Abcellera, where yep. more more uh, you know, when anybody can predict its activity, small molecules are a little trickier. But if you can build more predictive models of very large libraries of small molecules, yep. you you can enable like really creative business models. But uh, maybe to like wrap up the conversation, you know, yep. talk about your story, talk about eighteen fifty nine. We'll do this like two yep. years from now. But any yep. kind of lesson so far, um, you know, especially for that emerging person, the scientist who's working at Genentech or who's at Scripps right now, trying to figure out what to do with their career, uh, any kind yep. of lessons you, uh, you're willing to share? Um, I would say um, never stop being curious, never stop being kind of afraid to innovate and kind of navigate towards the solution don't be kind of afraid of the problems that you're going to face mm. okay that's really insightful
Well, I've learned a ton actually. I think you've uh, you give me like a bunch of cool ways to view business models, which I'm always yeah. a fanatic about. So yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Seriously, this is awesome. You know, for me personally as an investor, I love business yeah. model innovation because I'm trying to minimize dilution. Yeah. No. <laughs> and then on the opposite end too, I'm also want larger impact uh, across right. many different programs and products. Right. But uh, okay, Devin, this is really awesome. I know you're super busy. So yeah. thanks for doing this. I know it's gonna be useful uh, and I really appreciate it. Awesome. No, thanks, thanks, Josh. Really, really appreciate it. It's been fun. Awesome.